Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is the great Amanda Palmer. Here's the thing. We just started talking, so this is not going to segue smoothly into me saying, like, hi, Amanda. Amanda is a great uh, performer, writer, songwriter, and you're going to hear all of that right now. We're mid-combo talking about Seth Godin as we start in three, two, one. He belongs in a set of people of my life who has extended his actual hand and friendship to me, and because I am such a constantly traveling, not-here person, I have never been able to take him up on his invitation for pizza at his home. Oh, but no, you have to understand something. I know! No, you don't. Don't even I, you, start. You don't understand. What Are we recording? Good. You don't understand that... An invitation to Seth's... It's like, a, it's like sacrosanct. To, but, but also, <laughs> I, here's the thing. He's such a good cook. It's wrong. It's wrong. He's explained the pizza to me. It's wrong how good he is at cooking. And it, writing books. It's wrong how Fuck you. good you he is. At, he's so good at all the fucking things. Yeah. That it's almost, it, it's almost unfair if it... We're talking about Seth Godin. If, um, if, he, if he weren't so giving. Like, he's so outer-directed. He so wants your experience to be amazing. Yes, but what no one fucking realizes is that when you are giving and outer-directed, then you are showered with bounty. Yes. Because it always works that way. And if you live your life in fear and scarcity and greed and lack of generosity, everything sucks. <laughs> no. well, that's... It actually is that simple. We can be finished with the podcast now. We've I'm done it. Go. Let's Bye. move that, on. There's your takeaway. The thesis. Well, here's the thing about the podcast. <laughs> here's the thing about the podcast. I am a rigorous, insane pre- preparer, and Great. I um, make lists of questions. You've been immersed in Amanda Palmer. I have, but you'll note I have, no, I have no fucking questions. I put my thing away, and I'll tell you why. Because I want us just to actually connect Talk and have pizza. yeah i just want to have a conversation with you great because having read your book and i'd watched the ted talk a long time ago but having read the book and i know your music i thought i would rather take the risk of us actually having like a creative hour with each other well you know what is great is the timing of this because i have actually been doing specific interviews about this record for the last three weeks and i am just about at the point where I'm tired of talking about my record and the exact, you know, the exact pinpointed questions about abortion that all of these journalists. Well, have I was prepared. definitely not going to ask that because you've. <laughs> I, I knew you must have been asked it a thousand times. I mean, I'll happily talk about it all day, but uh, it is. Uh, it's really nice to just have a free flowing conversation every once in a while. I'm sure I'll be able to insert my abortion. Yeah, promote. No, no, no. Please promote. <laughs> as promote we're going. I'll promote my abortion. The promote the whole time. thing. Well, I was more. I was. There are a few different things that have. I just wanted to see what would stay with me and. Like you, I've had, um, like, I don't know if you did any research before coming in here or if you know that I make this TV show and stuff. And do you know or not? You're going to have to tell me. So I'm the, sh- uh, along with my partner, showrunner of the TV series Billions. And yes, that I know. Created and all that stuff. But I've never watched that's it. That's fine. But I started in music. I was an A&R guy. I started in music and then became a you? writer. <laughs> yeah. I know you guys. Yeah. You made my life hell The worst. <laughs> no, that's why I had to fucking leave it. That's why I had to leave it. Yeah, thank you for leaving. Because it's, it's dehumanizing to me. Thank you for leaving me. with me. We all left. Well, it's a terrible... We got out of the purgatory of the music, the music industry well, system. in your book, you know, the... Did you ever, you know, the, your, your, your ability to find 
spots for you to be the artist that you wanted to be as you were slowly moving mm. is, is remarkable and fascinating to me the way that you were able to listen to yourself. One thing that is not really in the book, you know, in the book you talk about the arguing you, with the record by company. By the book you mean the art of asking? Yeah. Yeah. What? That's good promoting also. We're in there. No, I'm just saying. Well, I know no, you wrote another. There's, because there's a brand new book yes. and I want to make sure that I know what no, you're No, Art reading. of Asking. But So the fight with the record company is there. But what's not really there is when you made the decision or how you made the decision that gatekeepers didn't matter to you. Oh, because it's clear you did. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, what's ironic is that I actually thought gatekeepers were in charge. Like I thought that there was so there you know there's the there was music and art this amazing thing that we all experience and this thing that I experienced and really found holy as a teenager and amazing bands who looked and felt liberated and free and I knew that there was that like check I understand art is amazing music amazing it can change your life it can change your mind it's this amazing sacred holy thing and then on the other side I knew that there was the system. And I mean, I came of age in the 80s. I was born in 1976. I was raised by MTV and radio. And, you know, it was amazing what I didn't know. But I basically had just swallowed the Kool-Aid of commercial music and that, like, there were people in charge. And I knew there were people in charge. And I knew that if you were going to be successful, you had to convince the people in charge to share your music throughout the world. And then you would be able to get back to the point of music, which is that people would love it and you would connect with them. But you would have to go through the system. But did you think those people, did you think that their judgment of your art yeah. rendered an actual judgment on the art did because often there's a false construct we have right yeah. which is because they're the gatekeepers they must know something do, do, and so can you talk through your own evolution on that question well i think one of the things that i've always carried with me from the beginning and like in my gut since i was a teenager was a unshakable I used to think it was naive. Now I realize it was more profound, an unshakable belief that what I had to say was just what I had to say and that it wasn't judgeable. It just was art. And I don't know where that fundamental unshakable belief in my art came. I certainly didn't have that kind of unshakable belief in myself. I was a very insecure teenager really insecure, very concerned with looking cool, very concerned with being cool, very concerned with making sure that people knew yeah, I book, was cool. In the book you say you can dress goth, but you couldn't talk. Right. But I mean, I really was concerned with the appearances, even if the, the appearance was, I want to make sure that you know that I'm a freak and that I don't believe in people like you. All of that was still very important for me to clutch onto. And, and yet, I didn't feel that way about my songs. My songs got the pass. I could stand in complete judgment of myself and call myself full of shit and feel insecure and be very, very, very scared, you know, especially at 16, 17, 18 years old. But I had a core belief that when I wrote a good song, it was just good and that no one was going to tell me it wasn't good and valid. 
Which is interesting when you think about the fact that at that age, I wouldn't play my music for anyone. I just wouldn't because I, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't, I couldn't, handle, couldn't the handle the truth. Yeah, you say you couldn't like, handle criticism, um, and then you play it for your drummer, you play him all the songs, and you guys decide which you're going to record. Well, Bri and Brian's a really important part of this story and chapter because Brian, when I met him when I was 25, and I finally found a bandmate who I could trust, and I, you know, I played him a bunch of my material, he, he had such a deep, abiding belief in my songwriting and in what I had to say. And I mean, it's a miracle that on top of that, he was one of the world's best drummers, but he also had a deep abiding belief in the songs in their, you know, he never called anything I did bullshit. He never said this song is good, but that one's not. This one is cool, but that one's not. He was just like, you're amazing. You're an amazing songwriter we're going to fucking be in a band and we're going to go on the road and we're going to crush it. And if, he people has, don't, if people don't know, I just want to tell them Dresden Dolls. If Dresden, they want to go hear this music, and yeah. you can hear your confidence. I will say, you can really hear your confidence in and his. And Brian's. Well, yeah. And Brian's. In the way you play and sing and the way he plays, right? Yeah, we were an unapologetic punk rock drums and piano band. But, yeah, there's even some <laughs> Hazel O'Connor in there. Like, it's, there's a lot of... It sounds both. It still sounds really current and contemporary. Dresden Dolls. Well, I think. we weren't and imitating anything. We were just taking my weird ass songs, which were a combination of every musical influence under the sun, and and Brian would listen to the tunes, put drums to them, and then we would go out and play them as loudly as possible. How did this sort of bedrock faith and confidence juxtapose for you with? what you describe as the guilt you felt for trying to live the life of an artist. Oh, well, I, because people who listen, let me say, because people who listen to this, many of the people who listen to the podcast are at a precipice. They're trying to figure out how to get themselves to do the work. Uh -huh. They're feeling so, how do I take a half hour when my kid, when, you know, when there are all these other things, how, yeah, yeah, how can yeah. I justify? Can you talk about that a little well, you bit? Know what you felt like and, you know what's really interesting, and I don't talk about this very much, so I'm glad you asked following on what we were just discussing, which is Brian Viglione changed my life because he focused the shit out of me. I was 25, he was 23 at the time, and I had blindly stumbled my way through a liberal arts education that I didn't want in the first place, but that my family told me I had to have came out of university just knowing I want to be an artist. I want to be a, a professional singer-songwriter. I don't have the slightest fucking clue how you do that. You know, I hadn't gone to art school. I hadn't gone to music school. I didn't know anything about how to accomplish what it was I wanted to accomplish. And I knew that, you know, there were open mics and I knew that I could start booking shows because I came from punk rock world. I, you know, I wasn't clueless, but I was scared. You know, you couldn't just like open up the yellow pages and get a job as an entry level indie rock musician. Um, and I was a street performer. So um, if you've seen my TED talk or you've read my book or anything, you know that when I was in my early 20s, I was a living statue. I worked in Harvard Square. And I dressed up in a white bridal gown, painted myself white, and stood totally still. I was that person. Um, and I actually made a ton of money doing that. I could make 50 bucks an hour. 
So I actually had, you know, I had that going on. I had my little job at the ice cream store. I, you know, I got a job as a stripper. I was making bank and I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I knew that I had all these songs and that I kept writing. And then, you know, I got a wonderful apartment and kind of an artist's collective. And I was just kind of coasting along, not really needing to push myself and not really needing to be disciplined because I had a life that sort of worked. I had all the money I needed. I had enough money for beer. I had enough money for clothes. I had enough money for cigarettes. But I sort of, I started trying to put together a band. I started trying to find like-minded musicians and no one was fitting the bill until boom, I met Brian Viglione at a party that I was throwing at my house and I played a couple of my songs and Brian looked at me and he was like, I need to play music with you. I'm in a band I can't stand, let's join forces. And what, this is a little known chapter of the Dresden Dolls. What happened next is that Brian was ready to go all in and book gigs and get in the van and like black flag, like let's go. Um, and I was lazy. I was like, why would we want to work this hard when we could just have brunch tomorrow? Where was that coming from, do you think? Because it wasn't just laziness. It because you you meant I because I want to get back to get what were you what was the hesitation about finally actually because right uh, a lot of us get to this precipice as yeah. I was saying and then the problem is what if we're not as good as we think we are I I knew that we were good and I knew that our band was good and I knew that my songs were good but I could taste and I was fucking right by the way I could taste how hard it was going to be yeah. I knew how hard it was going to be to get in a van and drive to eight cities in eight days and sleep on people's fucking floors and make no money and eat food at gas stations. I knew because I knew because I had tasted it and I was like, wow, that's going to be hard. And no one is helping us. It's just us. We didn't have a manager. We didn't have a label. We didn't have fuck all. And I was like, can't we just sort of do it and then also have brunch? And I could also street perform on Saturdays because I know I'll make plenty of money. And then I, we can also go to that party that my friend is throwing on Sunday. And Brian was like, no, we're going to be a punk band. We are going to have to work our fucking asses off. And and here is the chapter. This Here's the detail of the chapter that almost never gets told. Brian quit the band. He when it could, got hard? No. Or then when you mean? I, when I wasn't all in. Because he didn't want to be a dilettante. He, did, he didn't want to not get in the van. Like, he wanted to be Henry Rollins, and I wanted to be, I don't know, I wanted to be like a bohemian Cleopatra where I could just kind of do it but also enjoy myself. And Brian was like, I love you, you're so talented, but I just got a gig offer with another band who's about to tour Europe, and I'm out. Because you're not working hard enough. Wow. And then, dun, 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 lightning crash. The band got back their original drummer, fired Brian. Brian came to me hat in hand going like, sorry about that. I didn't get the Europe gig. And I looked at him and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm in. I'm all in because it, I I I didn't you don't know what you got till it's gone. And when he left, I was like, oh my god, there walked my future out of the door. 
the Dresden Dolls. You felt it. I felt, I knew it. I was like, this band is amazing. I'm not going to find another guy like that who believes in me so deeply and is that talented and is that crazy and is willing to get in a van and drive around America with me and make no money and set up a drum kit every night while I set up a piano and play to 20 people. Yeah. And so he came back and something in me flipped on. And I, that's when I started sitting up every night and emailing until four in the morning and going, I am fucking going for this. I am no longer going to I'm not going to my friends' parties. I'm not getting wasted every night. I'll get wasted occasionally, but not every night. And I just, I, all of a sudden, I was just on fire because I knew what I had to lose. And I wasn't going to watch it happen again. And I think it's probably akin to what happens to some people at that age, around 25, 26, when they have a kid. And this, all of a sudden, there's stakes. And you go, do I want that or do I want this? Do I want to like continue down a path of dilettante mindlessness or am, am I going to commit and commit and grow the fuck up? And I felt it. Like I felt I, I saw the fork in the road and I was like, it's left or right and I'm going that Did way. the guilt dissipate then? Talk a little bit about what you, because I was really struck by that passage where you talked about realizing you felt guilty, part of you felt guilty about living as an artist. And, yeah. and that for me well, connected, a, yeah, talk. That's like a different question. So on top of that, you know, Brian didn't have any qualms about, you know, being an artist and it being real. And I didn't really either, but we had a lot of baggage yeah, from our families, from culture, just from the Kool-Aid that we swim in. This is one of my favorite things to talk about, The New Yorker, because I talk about The New Yorker all the time, whether I'm reading an ad or not. Um, the New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. I read every uh, issue of The New Yorker. And uh, look, they have the best writers in the world. They hold people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. Online and in print, they cover a huge range of topics, politics, news, international affairs, climate change, the environment, pop culture, arts, fiction, food, humor. And people love the cartoons. And uh, to me, this is like elevated, deep, thoughtful writing that's not... Uh, trying to show off, that's not trying to be too smart for the room, that's actually just trying to make you, me, us, smarter, more well-informed, challenged in the best way. I mean, some of their writers are some of my favorite writers working. I love Helen Rosner. Uh, both, I think she's a great person, but a great writer. Uh, Ronan Farrow, Hilton Alls, these are great, sort of groundbreaking writers who write for The New Yorker. And you never come away from reading The New Yorker without feeling edified and like you're just a little better than you were before you started. And they're trying to make it really easy. They're trying to give you 12 weeks for just six bucks. It's regularly 12 bucks plus the New Yorker tote bag, which even if you don't read the thing, the tote bag makes people think you do. And so then look, you've gotten something out of it. You get home delivery of the print edition each week, unlimited access to newyorker.com. I'm reading newyorker.com every single day, 10 to 15 exclusive site only stories every day. You get access to the apps, online archive, Crossword puzzles, more. Get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just six bucks, plus the exclusive tote. Go to newyorker.com slash moment. Listeners save 50% when they enter moment. Read The New Yorker. 
So I was 30, Amanda, had our first kid, and I hadn't written a word until then, and that's what made me a writer. Yeah. So exactly what you're saying. Yeah. That moment happened stakes. for me. I had the stakes of, am I going to be a bitter, miserable dad who comes home and doesn't tell his kid to dream of whatever he wants to <gasps> be, right? Or am I going to fucking do the thing? Right. So I had to go do you the did thing. did the thing. Right? So no, we had to do, you know, I had to do the thing, right? <laughs> you did the thing. But so, but, um, but there is something that strikes people sometimes who, who come from a certain kind of background where... You know, obviously the story at the beginning of your book is incredibly touching. I mean, most people who know your work know the story of you falling down the stairs. Um, What's the story of me falling down the stairs? Well, I know it, but they don't know it. Well, you fall down the stairs and you go two flights of stairs and then you report the story into your family. I'm like three years old. You're three years old and your family doesn't uh, believe you. Right. They give you no rhythm on the story at all. And in that moment, you realize, but wait, I'm here, I'm real, I'm in pain. Listen to me. Believe me. Setting me up for a life in rock and roll. Right. Uh, setting you up to be somebody <laughs> who has to, who has to demand a certain kind of attention for the world that you see through the, your prism, and that you're able to uh, have people accept that it's real, and you have to build your own tribe and family in a way. Right. Right. But still, most of your book is most your most of your work, your book, your TED talk, the records are marked with this incredible passion and commitment. And, I, and so that's what makes it surprising about the fact that, that you two felt a sense, and I wonder if you were fully past it, of, um, of it being a kind of a luxury. Sure. I mean, we had, both Brian and I, and so many artists I knew and know, have to confront a giant, monumental amount of cultural bullshit narrative about what it means to, quote, unquote, be an artist. Yeah, talk about this as much as you want. <laughs> are you enjoying this? I'm so into He's it. leaning yeah. back. I'm fully into this. Uh, well, we are raised to at least where I was. You know, I was raised in suburban Boston in a nice lefty liberal town called Lexington. Um being an artist wasn't really on the table as a real option, as a profession. It was a fantasy. It was something that other bizarre people did. But I wasn't, I didn't live in a town that was populated with artists. I didn't know any artists. Adults weren't artists. They did, quote unquote, real jobs. And my parents, you know, my parents were really wonderful. They were incredibly supportive of my creative desires. But underneath, you also had that sense that, but of course you'll have a real calling. You know, you are, you know, and Brian, it was the same thing. Brian, you know, I remember Brian telling me that his mom and dad, they were both so supportive of his art and his drumming, but you know, at a certain point, they kind of did what my parents did, which is like, and what's the real plan? Like, how are you gonna make money? How are you gonna make a living? What's the actual contribution going to be, even though you're a fantastic musician and you love this thing? And there's like, there's a psychic dissonance when you're encouraged and supported as an artist, but you're also told that that's not really a real thing or a real profession or, and to me, the darkest side of that is it's selfish. It's narcissistic. This is what I'm asking. It's yes. bullshit. Like, 
what, who were you to think that what you can, you know, that, that your contribution is going to be like yeah. making shit? Like, how is that real? And Neil Gaiman, my husband, yes. like he had to walk through the same gauntlet. And he actually said something similar to you, which is once he had kids and he had kids very, very young. He was 22, 23 when he had his first two kids. Yeah. Um, he just had to fucking get it together. And he was like, this is my talent. I don't have another talent. I can't do anything else. All I know, all I know how to do is make shit up. So he made Sandman. Right. Amazing. <laughs> like no, amazing. Of course. No, I I'm not Amanda, I was sitting in my AR guy's office, stacks of demo tapes. Uh, I had never smoked a cigarette in my life. I'm 29. What, la what stuck, label was this? By then, it, I worked at Electra, Giant, and EMI. Um, and I was really good at the finding talent part. Like, I'm very, very, very good at recognizing at a very early stage when someone was special. Yeah. Like, I signed people to their first deal and became huge superstars over and over again. I was terrible. I mean, Tracy Chapman, D'Angelo, David Gray. Tracy all, Chapman, and, I love you. Thank and you. Um, no, she, she, it's all her. I just was involved at an early stage and helped her. Still um, thank you. Yeah. And, um, and then my friend Gary Harris brought D'Angelo to me when I was his boss. And I was like, yes, this guy's a genius. Let's sign him. But I was terrible. And it made me feel soul dead every part of the job except the recognizing talent. Like what, like what parts of the job? The promotion job parts. When you have to go into a promotion. Like, okay, the feeling when you would play, you know, you'd work with somebody they would record, David Gray would record his album. I would go play it for the publicity woman. And you know, what I'd want the publicity woman to do is this hear- This is amazing. Well, I would know, you know what I'd really want is them to open the window and say, never need to hear anything again and jump out. Right. That's really what I want, right? Yeah. Is them to plummet Hopefully to their- Hopefully calling Rolling Stone yes, on the as way as they're falling down. <laughs> plummet, <laughs> to their, plummet to their death as they're, as as they're, they're calling the Rolling Stone. That's what I want to happen. <laughs> and so anything short of that is already crushing to me. Right. But especially when it's not, especially when it's someone you believe in. It's not me. Oh, how do you think it feels to be the artist? Well, now I know, right? I've known for the last 22 <laughs> years, I know how it feels to be the person doing yeah. the work because I've been a professional writer for that long right. in doing this, right? And it feels the same way, doesn't it? Uh, or, I, if you yeah. send someone something, you want it to be the best thing they've ever fucking written and they want to throw themselves well, uh, I'll tell you there. a difference. And it goes right to what we're talking about. Okay, tell me. There's a helplessness when you're the person trying to shepherd the work. Yeah. That when you're the person who's creating the work, you don't have. Mm. When you're you the person creating the work, you can just go make another fucking record. I'm your man to Palmer. You can go write a book. You have the tools. When you're just the person with the faith you're, in the person. You're, with, you're powerless. You're, you Sorry. are powerless. <laughs> but so this goes back to all that stuff. I'm sitting in the office smoking cigarettes for the first time in my life, fucking eating cheeseburgers and realizing... Oh, I'm gonna become a toxic person. Thank you. I for, have to. Thank you for realizing. I that. have to finally. What? No, it's like. But this is the thing. I had to finally accept. Um, it. Uh, trying to be an artist, I have to accept the fact this is what. Um, I have to listen to this voice that's insisting upon this, and if I keep shutting it down, I'm something in me is gonna become horrible, mm. and that fights with. Yeah, but artists are different. They're self-destructive. They're, um, you know, they're special. They've been anointed. Blah. I wasn't anointed, which is like a lot of the dialogue that's going in people's heads. I yeah. mean, even though you say you knew you were an artist. I knew I wanted to be an artist. You knew you wanted to be an artist, but you're also saying you kind of believed the, the uh, what makes you so special. I 
spent my life, I mean, my teens and my 20s especially, in a in, engaged in an emotional and mental battle against myself and against others in the Amanda Palmer What Makes You So Special department. This is huge. Yeah. No, this is... <laughs> And I mean, I was that kid. I was the, why do you think the rules don't apply to you? Why do you think you're special? Why do you insist on constantly having to get attention? Like, and a lot of that really became internalized. But I also was smart enough at the same time to go, wait a minute, like, I, I am special and unique, but fuck you, like, we all are. Why are we not all like rising up in the third grade and like telling Miss Kalambokas to shove it? Why is she treating us all like pod people? Why is this place so awful? Yes. <laughs> Why are we not like yes. and we're mad as hell, we're mad right, as hell. But I like I didn't just believe in me. I believed in all of it. I believed in a free humanity. I believed that we should all be feeling love and artistry all the time and that we should like drop acid and run in the woods and scream at the sky. Like, But how would you express that when you were in these worlds with other people and rules and strict loud, loud, Too loudly. Oh, you would. Yeah. <laughs> and get in trouble. I mean, I was always getting in trouble. But I also, you know, even back then, I kind of had the hallmarks of becoming what I am now. I was always grabbing the neighborhood kids and putting on a play in the backyard and, you know, getting everyone together to do pranks and trying to make life feel vital. Not just for me. I didn't I didn't so much care about me. I wanted everyone to be excited. You know, I wanted to put on a show. I wanted to put on a play. I wanted to start a parade. Well, this life force that's so extreme and that runs through your all your work made now i'm not going to ask you about the abortion song but it does make the song on your on your new record which bl blows I love me how away. you just went from parade to abortion in yeah four well seconds. but this is the thing <laughs> i'm not going to ask about that but what i am going to say is you know that that song where you talk about this being just a ride which i know is a quote but we talk about this being just a ride but the the second part of it that you can stop and it basically right what's the line exactly in the song uh it's just a ride and you've got the choice to get off anytime that you like and then as that song keeps going you don't just sort of say that it's like you really put the idea out here about the what's the line about nothingness the alternative's nothingness you might as well give it a try right yeah but the alternative's nothingness you might as well give it a try Give it a try could apply to the no to choosing nothingness or sure. choosing the other thing. It's open ended. Yeah, and I mean, life is. It is a constant. I feel the older I get, the more I feel like life is just a series of decisions. You know, micro decisions all day, every day, where you're either saying yes to the universe or you're saying no, and and as we grow older, you know, when we're younger, we think. Sometimes that saying no is saying yes, and we think that saying yes is saying no, and we've got it all confused, you know. Um, and then we become discriminating when we get older. You know, we realize that we don't have to say yes to, like, every single sexual partner and every drug to be saying yes to the universe, that actually we there's a deeper voice and that when we listen to that deeper voice that's saying like you know maybe don't do those drugs tonight because tomorrow <laughs> um and 
And yet, like, it's tuning into the inner voice that's making the decision instead of all of the cultural bullshit or what your friends are telling you or what the advertisers are telling you. Do you still find yourself you. having to wrestle with the cultural bullshit? Way less than I used to. And especially... I don't in, mean externally. I mean internally. No, internally, I've actually felt like a sea change even just in the last couple of years. Um, having a kid helped things simultaneously it's hard to untangle them at this point my 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 giant mentor and yeah. best friend dying changed things and right at the same time i had a kid and right at the same time i started my patreon all those things happened within 2 months of each other and um and then like the final you know kick down the door moment was having a miscarriage not long after that and feeling finally fully aware of my own power and my own power in the face of bullshit. And, and pain. I mean, bullshit and pain. But, well, just outside opinions about ah. who I was, how it should be done, what I'm allowed to say, when I'm allowed to say it. But also, you know, it's not that I haven't had that attitude since I was 16. I've had that punk rock, I can say anything I want, you know, but... There's a there's a discrimination that comes along with it now, and uh, and it's like my sense of discrimination and also compassion for others finally caught up, and instead of just going, we have to radically tell the truth all the time, except when we don't want to, because I don't want to right now, because it might not make me look cool, or it might get me in trouble, or da da da. Um, I really, I feel like I have achieved some kind of singularity in that I, you know, my ability to tell the truth is now at kind of peak truth, but I also understand how to be discriminating and I also understand how to be very empathetic and compassionate. And if you don't have those three ingredients, the truth can destroy things and destroy people. And if you don't have, it's this, a very powerful sword. Yes, and it can be. You it can. And there be are clumsy. times to unsheath the sword. <laughs> no, there are times to un unsheath that sword. Yeah, maybe most times, but all, but then there are times to just choose not to. Right, and there are different reasons to choose. You know, one of the things that I've gotten much better at discriminating about is like not just is the truth going to hurt? Is it going to work? But like, do I have the inner fortitude right now to fight this particular battle? And if I don't, I shouldn't be unshielding, uh, unsheathing this sword. I will not be, I will not be a good warrior. I'll be too tired. I'll be too sloppy. It's not uh, the time. Yeah, right. You know, you have to be surgical with it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes complete sense. And especially if the the cause you're taking up for. Yeah, well, and that's why the timing of this record isn't an accident. 2012 and 13 kicked my ass emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. I was just toasted. I was done. Why? Uh, because my friend was about to die of cancer and I was beside myself because of that. And also if you've ever taken care of someone with cancer as they slowly disappear, it is the most draining, exhausting, painful, especially if there are questions of whether they're going to survive or not. It was just like being on the world's most painful, mysterious roller coaster. 
So there was that. And I was the closest thing he had to a daughter. So I was doing the chemo drives and, you know, and that was a four-year marathon of pain. And I, um, and I went through a, an abortion that I kept secret at the time. Um, and I, I really got my ass kicked by the, in the court of public opinion, not just once, but twice and a third time. About the musician, you mean about the musician? First about using Kickstarter period, because I was really, you know, I was, I was really sort of like shunned and teased by the music industry community. And then on Who then all followed you, by the way, which then all followed you. It didn't matter at the time. You know, at the time, I was tasteless, greedy Amanda Palmer who was begging her fans for money. And uh-huh. yeah, if you chose to listen to that, it was painful. It was painful to feel so misunderstood, especially when I felt like my community was such a beautiful one. And then the musician controversy happened, which made me feel even more isolated and alone because I didn't just feel criticized, I felt totally misunderstood wronged. and misinterpreted. You wronged. Um, you, I feel you were wronged on that one, yes. I'll just say but I at feel the you were t- wrong. But that at the one. time I had to, you know, I had to see all of the blogs and the articles and the endless Twitter feed of we never liked you anyway and we always thought you were full of shit and had no talent and now this. Um and and then the worst part was the following spring. The record dropped in the fall of 2012 and in the spring of 2013, the Boston bombing happened right in my neighborhood. And I tossed off a very, very short stream of consciousness poem that I never thought would leave my community. When my community loved the poem, it was just a sort of simple exercise of, you know, Neil and I being trapped by the lockdown and not knowing how we were going to get to New York and and an empathetic imagination exercise of what it must have felt like to be that 17-year-old kid, the bomber who had just murdered, brutally murdered all these people and was on the run from the police in our midst. And then we found out that he, you know, there he was bleeding in a boat in someone's backyard waiting, just waiting to be found. And I was like, what does that feel like? What does it feel like to be a suburban 17-year-old kid you know, who's just like me and just like the kids I grew up with, except not. And then you bomb a bunch of people in downtown Boston and you you run and you hide and you bleed and there you are waiting. What goes through your head? And that's what the poem sort of addressed. And and the the mo- that was the that was the nadir of that era of my life because, because I got, you got it, destroyed by that. I got destroyed. I got I got yelled at by the right for being a terrorist sympathizer and yelled at by the left for being tasteless and writing a poem too soon and daring to empathize with someone who did not deserve empathy. I think on The Rising, I think Bruce has a song where he goes into the head of one of the terrorists and uh, I mean, I think it's a. There's a long tradition of trying to understand. If you there's if, a long tradition of artists trying to understand. Well, wait. In the after this horrible deed, uh, horrible deed, and maybe a horrible person, but maybe I think though, we could argue a pretty. I mean, by our by our judgment, by our standards, a pretty horrible person. That's what I'm saying. Yes, a horrible <laughs> yeah. person, but a human, and that's what you're trying to understand. Well, look back at all of art. Look at Oedipus. 
You know, one of the most enduring plays of all time is a guy murdering his father and having sex with his mother and then gouging his eyes out. In his defense, he, he tried not to. Okay. But most you know I mean? of us... Of, he tried most, really hard not to. But most of he us, didn't know he was doing it. Most of us haven't been there. But it is, it is the goal and the role of art and the artist's imagination to cast us as far into the empathetic darkness as we are able to go. And that's actually the walk of salvation. That's how art works on us. It makes the dark available without us actually having to do the deed. Why did the opinion outside your tribe matter to you? Because it was hard. Because it sucked. Because no one wanted to open up the newspaper. You know, no one wants to open up the newspaper and see something horrible about themselves. And I will tell you what the the darkest part of this for me was feeling. You know, with the Kickstarter stuff, with this, with the crowdfunding, with the musicians, that was fine fundamentally because I felt misunderstood. In this case, when I doubled down on my poem and I went out to the public saying, I just actually believe in this. I really don't believe that empathy and compassion should be special and selective. I actually believe that we have to do it for everybody. And actually, like, it's a facet of this that we have to do it for everybody. And by the way, all you Christian people yelling at me, isn't this the main thing that Jesus talked about? And even then, the pushback was, we just don't agree with you, Amanda. Compassion has limits, and you've crossed a line. Well, I, you know, just as I'm sitting here and thinking about so it, and I felt so alone. Yeah, I can feel, I can understand why. Sitting here thinking about it, there are there are lines I, that I wonder why. It's worth exploring, right? If someone tried to write an empathetic poem about the guy who shot Martin Luther King, yeah. Well, I think I would be I would be offended. But, I would but be empathy is not endorsement. Yes, I'm it's just trying not, to t- parse. I'm just trying to tease it out. But not you writing it, right? You have to... You, but it's like, an artist can't sense it. You have to write it. Right, but someone has to write that poem too because what frame of mind and how dark and twisted and broken and in pain would you have to be to shoot... May Martin I recommend Luther that King? you don't, please. May I recommend that you but, don't write but it. Can but I, yes. Can I no, actually I point out that if you look through the giant canon of artistic offerings, that imagining is where a lot of artists do go. Because if we can't go there, we can't understand and start to attempt to fix humanity and and actually know what ingredients we do need to be kind to one another. This underpinning is exactly right. But you, you had to find it? You didn't have it right then? Because if you did, I think then the slings and arrows wouldn't have hurt you as much. I think, I think withstanding that moment yes. in that fire galvanized me like nothing else because I stood my fucking ground and I did not write an apologetic letter to the newspapers and to Boston and to the universe saying you're right there are people that we should have compassion for and this kid isn't one of them you're right I just don't believe that and I actually I mean it's funny that we're talking about this now I actually just came full circle and wrote a poem last week about that poem and about that moment that I delivered, like actually shaking in my boots to a giant theater of people in Boston for a charity 
uh, a charity gig that was put on by an, an org called, oh, I haven't seen this. called Mass Poetry. I haven't put it out. And I was like, I think, I think I'm healed enough and I think this city is ready to hear this. And I was terrified to read it. I was so terrified to read it that I had a backup poem in case I chickened out at the last moment because me and Neil were there together as a couple and we were the last readers of the night. And it was only... Did he encourage you to do it? He did and he helped me edit the poem. And it was only... It was only listening to the other people before us getting up and just throwing down truth after truth about empathy and love and fearlessness that I was like, uh, okay, I have to read this now. But I was scared shitless to read that poem. It was one of the bravest things I have done in years. And how was it received? Overwhelmingly positive. In fact, the, how did that feel to you? Did it feel like it release? Felt, it yeah, it felt like a final. I felt like a final turn, and my heart just clicked into place. And I will tell you, I knew that it was good, not just from the reception in the room, but because after after the gig, you know, sort of hanging out with people. Not only did a lot of people come up to me and say, "Oh my God, thank you for expressing that. Thank you for saying that. Oh my God, I agree all that." But the the best thing that you could say to a writer or a poet is, when are you publishing that? I need to send it to someone. That's awesome. And I was like, I'm my work here is done. When <laughs> when you were when you were writing this album, so this is the first album of original music in how long? Since 2012, since the right. Kickstarter record. So were you able to not give in to self-consciousness as you were beginning to write the record? Well, this record wasn't, I didn't sit down to write a record. Um, the first six or so songs that are on this album that were written, you know, chronologically, they weren't written to be on a record. In fact, I thought, and I love that I can explain this to you, Mr. X-A&R man. Um, I thought that starting a Patreon, you know, almost four years ago was yeah. going to liberate me from these shackles of the draconian album cycle, yeah, dog and pony sure. bullshit show that I was so tired of doing. And I thought that I was going to be able to just release a single and get paid and release a single and get paid and write really fast and put the song out the next day and get paid. Like this was a complete and utter freedom to me. And I did it and it worked, but I also noticed that that machine, you know, that old school machine that still that I still needed to have in my favor and have in my court was just not paying any attention to anything. You I was needed doing. them to create interest so that more people would come to the Patreon. Yeah, because I just knew that I was in my own little echo chamber and I love my echo chamber. I live in the world's sweetest, most profitable echo chamber in history. I don't know any other indie musicians out there who can sit down today, demo a song, upload it to SoundCloud and charge their fans $55,000. I can. It's a really great lucrative echo chamber. What do you mean charge $55,000? That's how my Patreon works. You say when it's when we get to this number, I'll release the No, record. I can do it anytime I want. I have access to my fans' bank accounts, and anytime I decide to put out a piece of material, I can just push a button and get paid. And it get paid how, by how much? Almost $60,000 for the first piece of content in a month because pledges are capped. And then for the second 
Oh, you didn't turn off your phone. So you bitch. Not, so unprofessional. Um, about about sixty thousand dollars. She wasn't saying that about herself. It's me, my phone. Just it was to be your clear, phone. My own um, phone. Uh, about sixty thousand dollars for the first piece of content. About forty for the second. About thirty for the third. And from uh, how many people total? Fifteen thousand. And they, how does it? So explain how it works. That you can just. They've said to you. You can draw up to X from me. Yes, it it basically is like Kickstarter, except it's it's a it the fans are charged by the month instead of just once. And if you decide to pledge to me for five dollars, you're my five dollar patron. You can either uh, you can either give me an unlimited amount of five dollar you know pledges, meaning that if I put out, let's say I put out ten things that month. You'd be charged 50 bucks. That's a lot. So if you're on a budget, you could cap your pledge at $10. You'd still get all of the content, but you'd only be charged for the first two events. Right. And I usually put out two to four things in a month. So I am making a really insanely good living for a mid-list indie musician. But I also work my ass off and have a, you know, and have a full-time team and a giant office and, you know, basically and you've run a production built a community. I mean, there's a community that you've built. Yeah, and it's a beautiful community. Imagine if Gaga would do that with her monsters. She would clean the fuck up. Even before now, she this was a path. Wanna now, know, forget about it, but... Want to know a secret? Yes. Not so secret secret? I don't know if it's a secret about Lady Gaga. She loved the Dresden dolls. I'm sure she did. It makes total sense. And she was right there in New York at the time that we were... As Gaga or as a Stephanie then? No, she, you know, she's at least 10 years younger than me. So she would have seen us coming up in New York when she was a teenager. Has she come... Have you met her since? She listed us as an influence on her MySpace page. That's, that's the only reason That's the I extent that. of it? Yeah. Somebody listening to this definitely knows her. Tell her to find Amanda. I've met her... I've actually met her dad because I've, uh, I've run into him on the Upper West Side. Are you a fan? I'm an absolute fan of Gaga. Me I think, too, man. and and it, and the motherly part of me looks at her and how she has to negotiate. And I watched her, you know, walk through the same pain. I felt like I learned label. something about her reading your reading your book. Right. Well, she she made all the same mistakes that I did, and that so many large artists make, which is, you know, she just walked right into the belly of the beast and thought that she could maintain control and. And then you find out that you can't, and the truth is fucking hard to swallow. So you were doing, sorry, what I asked you was about writing the songs. So first you wrote these songs for your people. Yeah. But then you realized, uh, I, now, does making an album feel like a different sort of artistic statement to you, too? Then. Than just releasing singles. Because yes. for, as well, a fan, you, I still, now it's partially because I'm old, but as a fan. You want an album. I want, I still want, you know, I want... Like Craig Finn's a good friend of mine from Holt Steady, right? Yeah. And he'll send me songs as they're going. Yeah. I just want the whole thing. So I want the I, album. I am the same way. And I and I had to bump up against my own hypocrisy because I didn't want to go through the album cycle thing, but I realized that even if I was a massive fan of an artist, and you know, the ones I could think of off the top of my head are like Lord or Nick Cave or Bjork yes. or, you know. I love that you were stripping to Nick Cave. That's the best. I was stripping. That's a Cave. great detail. Um, the, the part of me that wants an album too and wants a longer moment 
to sit down with an artist and hear their larger thing that they have to say. I had to I I had to accept that too. And also John Congleton was a huge part of this, the producer engineer of the record, because I kept calling him and saying, I have these amazing songs. I just want to record a couple of them at a time. And he was like, nope, album by click. And I was like, come on, John, nope, album by click. Like I'm not even talking to you on the phone until you're ready to make a record. And I was like, that's so bullshit, old school. Maybe you're, oh, maybe you're right. God damn it. And by the time I, by the time I had amassed enough songs that felt like they were probably in a group, I knew that, I knew that I probably needed to make an album. And also it was the press that taught me because if the press had followed what I was doing and it actually responded to my plethora of press releases about I'm doing this, now I'm doing this, and I put out a video and I put out a single, if they had followed me around, I probably wouldn't have put out an album. But because they started tuning me out, I was like, uh, I really am going to need to do this. And and and, well, and what did you need, though? What did you need? So there's the artistic need, but which John was helping you clarify. Yeah. But what did you need from outside of your bubble? Because at the outside of your bubbles fucked you over a bunch of times. So but what's still, this need? What is, yeah, you're smiling. Still, what's the no, thing? Because any artist always wants, especially if you feel like you have something to contribute, you always want to expand your audience. And I felt like a record like, especially a record like this and the kinds of songs I was writing, it was hard for me to put Drowning in the Sound out as a demo single and just watch it land in silence. It was hard for me. It was hard for me to put out a song like The Ride and and know that if if I was only going to give it to my patrons to listen to, like I withheld the ride. I was like, that's a good fucking song. I'm not going to release this to the public. And it was the first time. To the public or to your fans? I only released it to the patrons. And it was the first time I did it because I felt the power of the song. And I was like, I know. This is worth something. I know this is worth something. And I know given the track record that if I put this out as a glorious, you've got to listen to this, Amanda Palmer single, and I send it out to the music press so that it will be ignored. Because I know how the game works, but I know that if I package it with an album and the album has a cover and it comes with a letter and it's a quote-unquote capital A album, people will listen because that's just the way it works. And, and I'm glad it worked that way because John... And the, and the idea of doing a full album also kicked my ass into writing the best three songs on the record. You mean they, those came late? Those came late because I looked at the album sort of in its unfinished form and I was like, what's missing? Well, pretty much this is a memoir record. Pretty much this chronicles the last shitty seven years of my life and how relentless it's been. If I'm really being honest and I want to bring my wholehearted self to the table, I'm going to have to write a song about abortion and I'm going to have to write a good song about miscarriage. Oh, fuck. Like, I don't want to write about that. I don't want to write about that and then tour that. I don't want to have these conversations on people's podcasts. Like, that's going to be really uncomfortable. And And I'm old enough and wise enough to know that as soon as I had that thought, I just knew I was going to have well, to go there. Well, then that's that. Yeah, that's, yeah, fed that's that. Do you, what's your daily routine, create? like your creative daily routine? Do you I, journal? I don't create most days. What do you do most days? Like you're I, running your business most days and being I, uh, 
a parent most days? What I mean, I haven't written a song since the last song I wrote for the record, and that was like a year ago. I've been taking care of my kid, running my household, grocery shopping, making sandwiches, putting out a record, running my Patreon, go, running around and doing listening parties and promo. Do you live in blogs. England? No, we live in Woodstock, New York. And so you're there most of the time. Yeah, although, you know, I've been running around like crazy and I have spent a lot of time in England because Neil's been living there for the last two years working on his new TV show. So it's just right. been like backy forthy. Right. And do you meditate? I do. What kind now? Uh, I, the kind where you sit still and don't, you know, and try to think about nothing. Most uh, days? Most days when I'm being pretty good and I go through, I definitely go through phases of being much more disciplined. I kind of gave myself blanket permission to always prioritize my kid over yoga or meditation because he's three. Um, it's and, not a mistake even if he were yeah, 16. And I consider it as pr productive and as amazing as a mindfulness practice because hanging out with a three-year-old is a mindfulness practice. And as that he's now a three, yeah. are you a better listener than your parents were? I don't know. I don't want to throw my parents under the bus. You know, I'm sure that I'm failing in my own ways as a parent, and I'm sure Neil is too. But it's actually funny. Neil actually turns to me last night because we were in bed with our kid and we were just, you know, we were just horsing around. And Neil said something. He looked at him and he said, he's so much luckier than we were. Like we're just giving him so much unconditional love That's and attention. And we've both been, we've both gone through such a, you know, peculiar and unique emotional ringer in our own ways with our own paths, you know, our our parents were all wonderful in their own ways, but had li their limitations, as we will, I'm sure. You know, I don't know what Ash is going to be saying about us in interviews when he's my age, but I don't think we're going to come off with absolute perfect marks and flying colors. No, what you just said is a great place to end on, which is, may our kids be luckier than we are, and may their kids be luckier than them. Absolutely. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. <laughs> we try. We really try our best. We just try our best. Um, Amanda, you're a great artist, and you live just so bravely as an artist, and it's really inspiring. So thanks for being here. People can find you online on Twitter. They can find you through your Patreon. How do they find the Patreon? Uh, they can just Google Amanda Palmer Patreon, which is spelt like patron with an E, P-A-T-R-E. E O N, and I would also ask um, the best way to connect with me in this coming year is to come see me on tour. The stage show that I'm doing around this album is epic. It's a three-hour show. It's part TED Talk, part singer-songwriter show, part stand-up comedy. It's bizarre and beautiful, and I'm playing in huge theaters all over North America. AmandaPalmer.com for the tour Amanda dates? AmandaPalmer.net for the tour dates, or just Google, and I'm about to hit Washington, D.C., Philly, Boston, Chicago, New York, West Coast, uh, Pacific Northwest, and then I head to Europe and the U.K. and all Australia. Right, go find um, Amanda Palmer, listen to her music, read her book. If you're someone who's trying to figure out if you have something to say, don't try to figure it out, just say it. <laughs> All right, thanks, everybody. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can email me, momentbk at gmail.com. See you next time.